three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today, folks, is Chris Marquis, the CINE Professor of Chinese Management at the University of Cambridge, Judge Business School, and also the author of Better Business, How the B Corp Movement is Remaking Capitalism. Chris, welcome to the show. Kevin, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here with you. It's great to be here with you, too. It's not every day we get uh, a professor who is specializing in Chinese management. I'm curious to know what motivated you or attracted you, called you to study this profession. Yeah, sure. So more broadly, the area I'm in, I'm in like a management and strategy area. So studying how you know, you know, businesses are organized uh, more effectively, the strategies that lead to better performance. Uh, and within that, I focus a lot on sustainable development, social impact models, hence the book on, on B Corps. Uh, about 10 years ago, I started doing some research on those topics in China. You know, the reason being, I actually, uh, for some work reasons, had to be in Hong Kong for a bit. Uh, and with my interest in sustainability, I, I said, okay, why don't I go study some Chinese companies? And what I discovered, you know, that the issue there is so huge. You know, back that was the days of the air apocalypse. Not sure if you've, you know, remember or heard of the air apocalypse. This was w when the PM, you know, the particulate matter in the air was over a thousand and in it and basically if it goes over 300 it's it's uh it's like in the death zone and i was there during this actually i was leading a student trip and literally you could not see across the road because of how bad the pollution was so one re i mean it's so you know such a big issue and i figure if i want to devote my time to a topic i mean you should i should devote it to something that's a real serious issue but also you know the chinese government uh, has the ability to sort of make things turn on a dime in the way that, you know, Western democracies can't do. And so I thought it'd be interesting researching this and how a government that was saying they wanted to make changes uh, could actually, you know, maybe go ahead and do them. And, and, and actually, the air quality, at least, has gotten tremendously better since then. I'm curious around your research on Mao and kind of his influence on capitalism within an autonomous, um, you know, authoritarian uh, sure. ship, authoritarian ship, you know, yeah. describe to me kind of you, what you learned during that research and, and kind of what, I guess, some, some key findings. Yeah. I mean, so, 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 uh, yeah, you're referencing a new book I have coming out, uh, coming out in November. Uh, it's called Mao and Markets, uh, the Communist Roots of Chinese Enterprise. And, you know, so as I mentioned, I started off studying China, you know, from a sustainability angle, but really, really got interested in understanding, like, just how different the business culture and way of uh, way of operating in the economy uh, was there. So, you know, a couple things, um, you know. I, I, so I started doing doing research on these Chinese company sustainability, and some of them, you know, for instance, this shipping company called Costco, which you probably, if you've, you know, go to a container port, you'll see it's usually blue colored with big block C O S C O 
Uh, this is the largest Chinese uh, shipping company. And I did a Harvard case study on uh, the work that they were doing on sustainable um, sustainable shipping, you know, how they were, you know, really impl impl implementing advanced um, sort of measurement tracking, you know, global reporting initiative type of um, activities in, into their firm to really, uh, to really run their firm. And so I went to interview the CEO and I went into his office and there was a life-size statue of Mao uh, in between, on one side, the Chinese state flag, which, you know, has, uh, you know, sort of it's one large star and then five smaller stars, uh, red backgrounds. Um, and then on the other side was the the flag of the Chinese Communist Party, which had also same color red, uh, but with a hammer and sickle uh, where the where the stars uh, are sort of interesting to think, you know, uh, you're a business leader of one of the largest shipping companies in the world has you know, a statue of someone who was validly opposed to capitalism uh, and market economy. Uh, you know, every year I would take students to China and uh, and invariably one would take me aside after seeing the amazing ec economic vibrancy um, there and say, you know, China is not really a communist country. Um, so you know, this really embarked me on wanting to understand the the model, um, the model in China, and I could I could go on for a bit more, but I'm you know want want to intersperse things with questions as well. Yeah, well, absolutely. Thanks for sharing, and I think it's what what's helpful for viewers is to understand how the origins of Mao um, led to the uh, I guess the research in your book. What does sure. Mao and the influence that he had had on the communist state? back when they were, you know, a, sure. a very impoverished country have on Definitely. today's research and development with how it's in yeah. these businesses. So, so, let, um, so I'll get to that in a second, but let me back up a bit sure. and say, um, you know, so, so, so why I ended up writing this book is that I think that, you know, this idea of the model that the CCP has developed, um, is not really well understood. I think that, you know, the way the West frequently views China is through a, you know, economic, traditional economic development theory is that, you know, sort of the more wealthy a country gets, it'll become democratic. Uh, this is why China was admitted to the WTO in 2001. Or, you know, sort of look, think about the Soviet Union, uh, you know, communism is a very inflexible, um, system that will sort of collapse under its own weight, uh, or you know, the Deng Xiaoping who in nineteen who succeeded he he you know there was a, one person in between them but basically he was the next major leader of China after Mao, you know he had a famous saying you know I don't care if the cat is black or white as long as it catches a mouse you know meaning that you know it's okay to have market systems you know I, if market systems are going to work better I'd rather we're going to use those because. You know, we want to grow economically. So, so I think there's, but but I think that actually the flexibility implied in that is maybe not as much as people think. So I think there's all these misperceptions, um, and I think that that um, you know where it's interesting to to study Mao's in a couple um, area areas. So one is, you know, he had a variety of like ideological and military principles. So one was this really strong nationalistic um, 
you know, China has been through this century of humiliation. We need to, you know, make China great again, basically, in, in some ways. Um, and that actually, you know, a number of the papers I have sort of under, you know, try to understand how actually Chinese entrepreneurs really very much eschew um, foreign um, foreign investment, actually going global. You know, it's almost sort of against their economic interest because they've been conditioned by this, um, you know, sort of Maoist, you know, sort of self-reliance and, and against nationalism. And there's, we have, I'm not going to bore you with the statistical details, but in addition to that, we've done a bunch of interviews, but then also have some large databases where we're able to actually tease, tease that out in, in, in interesting ways. The second thing around, I, you know, sort of principles and ideology is Mao's military principles. And these are things that, you know, many um, entrepreneurs will tell you about, um, you know, you know, they, they followed his principles and, and a couple of sort of, well, one famous one is called the surrounding villages or surrounding cities from villages strategy. And so actually Orthodox Marxist Lenin, Leninism uh, at the time was that, you know, the way communist revolutions transpired was from workers in cities organizing and overthrowing the political establishment. That's actually what happened in, in the Soviet Union. In China, however, they tried that strategy um, and it failed. A number, you know, a number of, of the leaders came and tried that strategy and failed. And what they and what Mao actually said was that well, actually China is a mostly rural, agrarian, peasant based country. What we need to do is actually organize the rural areas and then uh, actually use the strength of that to conquer the cities. So the exact opposite strategy. Uh, and a number of, of sort of now well-known Chinese companies have followed the same thing, like Huawei, for instance, even the Ren Zhengfei, you know, Huawei is now like a hundred billion dollar a year company, you know, one of the most top patenting companies in the world, one of the most innovative companies. And the Ren Zhengfei said when they started off, they, you know, he said, well, you know, I couldn't compete against Alcatel and Lucent, the major, you know, telecommunication providers at that time. So I needed to do the sort of surrounding cities through villages strategy. I'm going to start in Chinese rural areas and build up the success of my business and then conquer those other companies uh, in the city. And yeah, another example, Pindodo is, um, you know, a, a sort of online retailer, big comp competitors, Alibaba, JD.com in cities. So they focused on the rural areas, grew and are now one of the major, you know, competitors. So, so those are just a couple examples of how, you know, entrepreneurs are using the military strategies, uh, but also, um, you know, more general principles. And let's talk about those general principles. What is the general philosophy? of an entrepreneur in China? How are they structuring their organization? How has it pertained also your work in the, the B Corp movement? Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. Um, I mean, and I, you know, in, there are, um, you know, a, a diversity of types of, of companies in China. Uh, so, so very well known, I mean, are a lot of the larger state-owned companies. So these are, you know, sort of the large banks, large telecommunications companies, uh, large financial services companies. Um, and then there are, you know, what are known as private companies, Leon companies. I mean, many of these are publicly traded. So it's sort of in 
from the West, the way we talk about things isn't doesn't it, it's a little bit confusing. But companies like Alibaba or Tencent, um, and these companies, you know, were founded by you know entrepreneurs mostly after the 1980s when China opened up, and you know they you know mostly within China they've grown. I mean, again, you know. You know, China is a gigantic market, 1.4 billion people. So many of the Chinese companies are really, or many Chinese products are really very, very tailored to uh, the Chinese market and actually have a lot harder time going global than maybe other other companies would. You know, like for instance, um, yeah. So so it's like for instance Baidu, which is the main search engine. Uh, you know, sort of Google competitor. You know, before Google left China. You know, it was the, the two main competitors. It's really very tailored to the Chinese language, and so is is very effective as a search engine in China. But you know, like Google has gone all around the world, um, uh, not not really in China. Uh, but so it's, it's it has that limitation. But but really, because the market is so large, you know, it's you know many of these companies are able to grow into, you know, some of the largest companies in the world, really, um, because. You know, they're they're you know because of the strength and the size of the Chinese economy. It's interesting you say that, and, and I want to tie that into the misconceptions that many Americans have of the Chinese uh, businesses, the Chinese operations, having their companies be state controlled. If you're an entrepreneur growing your organization to then have the government take control of it, the American philosophy is oh, interesting. Like I don't, I wouldn't want to start a business to have the government take it over and have. A statue of Mao in my in my right. conference room. Help help me as a viewer uh, based in America understand. You know, t I guess take me into kind of the the entrepreneurship mindset and, and how that uh, how that works. Yeah, interesting. I, you know, one of the things that I and, I, and I'm, I'm going to concept. You know, I, I know that you know sort of real leaders is this you know social mission company as well and, and fo focus on a lot of, you know, sort of social entrepreneurship, maybe philanthropy. Uh, tell you a couple stories about about entrepreneurs giving back and I, that I think really illustrates this in, 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 you know, sort of the mindset and why maybe they, you know, I'm sure there's coercion involved in, in you know, they don't have a choice. <laughs> you, know, you know, of course, they're, they're going to have to, you know, take state investment, take, you know, so-called helpers, from the government to come and oversee parts of their company, uh, so I, I, you know, in some ways, you know, you know, they don't they don't have any choice in the matter, so they sort of have to do it uh, or have to, you know. There's this recent program, Common Prosperity, which you know is is um, as a result, which is trying to lessen the income inequality that exists in China. Huge. Uh, gap between the poor and the rich, and so there's been many very public multi-billion-dollar uh, philanthropic gifts from you know people like the head of um, Tencent, Ponyma, or JD.com's founder Richard Lee. Uh, but but anyway, so these entrepreneurs that I've studied um, their philanthropic giving, you know the the motivations and way that the Chinese entrepreneurs. Uh, give back is I found to be very very different than in the West. So in the West, you think about people like, you know, just today or yesterday, I read Bill Gates gave another twenty billion uh, to his foundation, and you know Warren Buffett also, you know, I think just recently gave another three point, you know, three point something um, uh, to, to the Gates Foundation, which is very public on wanting to, you know, not, not wanting to do that himself, and 
trusting uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, uh, or you know, Mark Zuckerberg starts the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, really focused on biotech. I mean, those are things that are in the names of these entrepreneurs, and focused on issues. You know, Bill Bill Gates. It's about you know eradicating these various diseases like malaria, or some education initiatives, or you know, climate change. COVID is a big thing now. Zuckerberg, you know, about you know, biotech. I think is one of the pillars. The Chinese entrepreneurs, by contrast, where they what they talk about is, you know, when they were born, they were born into a situation where, I mean, China was dirt poor. I mean, I you know the per capita income, I'm not sure what it was, but probably a couple hundred dollars a year. You know, people, you know, probably not electricity, no running water, uh, and now they have billions of dollars, and so the amount of gratitude and uh, you know or and wanting to give back to china that they express is it is just tremendous and i think this is what actually you mm. see in their philanthropy so whereas in the west it's you know very much focused on you know big issues branded by the individual entrepreneur's name in china it's much more about okay let's give back to the issues that you know, to, to alleviate issues like environmental problems, social problems in China to, to help contribute to the further development of China. And also, typically, they do it collectively. So they will organize, um, you know, sort of Jack Ma, Pony Ma, a variety of other entrepreneurs will come together in a group and actually to tackle some, some issue, uh, which I can't imagine, you know, I, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Sergey Brin, um, you know Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, all coming together to say, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna, I don't know, build new housing in the poor areas of Silicon Valley. I, you know, I, I just can't imagine those guys with their sort of egos and want to do things on their own, um, you know, do that. Whereas in China, it's a much more the philanthropy is a much more collective uh, aspect. So. You know, that, you know, sort of you ask about the entrepreneurial model, and I think that it is, you know, really focused on the situation in China. I think sort of networking and connecting with peers is is part of that process. You know, maybe a deeper stakeholder orientation, I think it's definitely uh, the case. That is revelational uh, to know <laughs> that an entrepreneur, one of... 800 million, I believe, the World Bank has said they've raised people out of poverty. 800 yeah. million people. And if I'm one of those individuals, the philosophy is to give back to China for the contribution that they have already provided for me to give me income, food, housing, state-controlled state resources. And so to grow my organization, I'm going to work together to continually give back for the next generation. Is that a fair... I think so. I think there is definitely a sentiment like that in China that I've seen that, um, you know, that I've not seen other places. You know, the skeptic might say, oh, well, you know, of course they have to do that because they'll go to jail um, or, you know, they'll be detained by by the government. And, I, and I'm not denying that might happen. But I do from, you know, even before recent years where the government was really cracking down, even in a much more liberal time the contrast between leaders of Chinese companies and entrepreneurs that were rich and wanting to give back is very dramatic than what I've seen when I've talked to folks in the West. Interesting. And are you 
making the argument that this is a philosophy that could be adopted by social businesses is already being adopted by social businesses uh, in United States, where traditionally entrepreneurs are all about independence, freedom, liberties, things like that. I think I think so. I mean, I do think that there is something to be learned by, you know, I mean, I think as the West, which, you know, where capitalism has developed much more entrepreneurship, you know, I mean, the last, you know, 10 years, I think Chinese entrepreneurship has come more into its own. But I think, you know, the West is really the sort of shining star for entrepreneurship and capitalism. And I think that, you know, it's, um, it's easy to think that like, okay, we don't have anything to learn from other models around the world. And I think that, you know, particularly around sort of networking, considering broader sets of stakeholders, that the Chinese are more advanced than, than the West. And I think if you think about like the NGO context, which, you know, there is entrepreneurship in, in that context, you know, there's all kinds of discussion that, you know, there's too many organizations, you know, every organization founder wants to implement their what their solution is, uh, but actually if people work together, actually the, you know, the whole is much more than the sum of the parts, um, so to speak. And so there is all this fracturing. And I think that, you know, more general entrepreneurship, yeah, thinking about ways of, so yeah, sort of partnering, collaborating, uh, working together. I think there is definitely lessons to be learned there. This is an interesting discussion. And I, I remember the last time I had a discussion eerily similar to this was when COVID had happened. Okay. And it, the, the question was, what system is better suited for a pandemic? One with an autocratic, you know, a communist state and one with right. a democratic state. To you, Chris, curious to know um, the pros and cons of each system. Yeah, Just pros and cons. With, good, yeah. good question. Um, so I just want to say, uh, I mean, there are clearly pros and cons of each of each system. Um, you know, I think it's probably obvious to our listeners what those are. I mean, I think that, you know, in times of uncertainty, you know, it, like I mentioned with the environment, you know, actually being able to to a little bit uh, to be a little bit more stringent in locking down in um, having, you know, um, uh, vaccinations, I think, I think is a positive for the social good. So I think that having a a a more autocratic system allows for potentially better protection of the social good. However, you know, the flip side of that then is you have situations now where you know China is continuing with the zero COVID, which is creating all kinds of social unrest and problems uh, in the economy. So it's it's a hard balance. I mean, there you see the sort of the positive negatives. I must say though, that my, um, where the biggest difference and the most important thing for me is, uh, is around innovation. And I, I really fundamentally believe, and it could be that I, you know, I grew up in the West and it's a system I've gone through. I fundamentally believe that a free uh, and, sort of system where control is dispersed allows for a lot more creativity, innovation, support for new ideas. Um, you know, and I think this is, you know, the the vaccine situation is, you know, I think a big indication of that. I mean, these are um, uh, these RNA vaccines that have been, you know, totally revolutionary 
delivered in unbelievably fast times could not happen in China or a system like China because I, I, you know, because I think that actually the real sort of top down, I think there's a lot of fear is through, you know, you know, China, I think does run a little bit on fear. Uh, I think it's hard to be innovative if you're afraid of making errors and mistakes. And, you know, I'm, I, you know, Chinese listeners might say, you know, oh, you shouldn't criticize China like that, but this is something even that Xi Jinping himself says. I mean, he actually has criticized the government, lower level government leaders for not being more innovative. Uh, and, you know, it's not hard to connect the dots. I mean, if they, you know, I, I think there's been millions, maybe tens of millions of government bureaucrats that have actually been gone to jail or had bad things happen to them because of the so-called anti-corruption campaign that is going on now, which certainly there's been, there's, there was a lot of corruption that need to be, be sort of, you know, sort of eliminated, but apparently it's a lot of political score setting as well. So, uh, um, so of course, you know, I mean, people aren't going to innovate if they're totally afraid of, of going to jail. So I, so I do think that whereas there are, there's a lot of positives for being able to actually, you know, sort of protect social welfare. I think that, the hampering of innovation and the potential for the social control to go too far uh, are, the, are the big limits of an authoritarian system. And the example that comes to mind is like Jack Ma. I, I don't I yeah. remember when he spoke out against yeah. the state and then we didn't hear from him for a while. Yeah, um, yeah no, I mean, they, they, they not only didn't hear from him, but then, you know, they canceled his the IPO of his company uh, and financial, you know, Alibaba, you know, the e-commerce platform uh, company was already public, but Ant Financial that has Alipay, which is this totally amazing, you know, app that you can pay for things that, you know, it's like a lifestyle app, something you can pay, do all kinds of stuff. I mean, I still use it. I still have a Chinese phone number that I'm main maintaining, although I've been there for two and a half years. So through Alipay, I pay, you know, every month or so, just add a little bit of money to, to pay, right, to pay my cell phone bill. So I can keep that number. But um, you know, it's this amazing company and, you know, yeah, the government said, okay, we're not going to, you, you're going to have to cancel your IPO and yeah, you're going to disappear for a while. Uh, so anyways, it's, it is frightening. And curious to know from someone who uh, studies China and is much more well-versed and well-read than someone like me, you're, let's say your standard, you know, business person here in America, um, doesn't, you know, have, has never traveled to, to China other than Asia and, and Bali, yeah. the nice little layover in Hong Kong, which is actually really interesting while they're having the riots. Um, wow. But, you know, curious to know, do you think, you know, it, a, a system like this will ever surpass um, in terms of, let's say, a, uh, a cap size uh, will ever pass, uh, you know, the American dynasty with when you have examples like that where investors are like, oh, you know, I'm not going to put my capital into a company that's not going to be able to IPO. Case in point with Jack Ma is the, is the enterprise value of American philosophy, the go-getter, self-starter, entrepreneur. entrepreneur. You th do you think that will ever um, be surpassed by the uh, yeah. state uh, equal funding? Yeah, hard, yeah, hard, you know, Hard, hard, hard to say. I, I you know, uh, wish I had a crystal ball, a big, uh, be a better <laughs> investor. Too. But uh, you know, I do. Th so I think that um, 
the hard line, the 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 extent of the sort of hardlineness of China has taken the last couple of years. I think will make it hard to surpass the U.S. because these innovation region reasons I, I mentioned. I do think that, um, yeah, I mean China has a ton of innovation. You know, like I think all the companies, you know, like sort of Alibaba, you know, you know Tencent. Huawei, for that matter. I mean, these are tremendously innovative companies, and not, you know, for a long time the the story of China was just a bunch of copycats, um, you know, sort of knocking off products. Um, and that's, I think, that myth has been dispelled. Uh, I think there is a lot of innovation in the, you know, in the eighties, nineties, early two thousands, a lot of innovation. Um, but I do, you know, I do think that the engine of the future, so to speak, is entrepreneurship and innovation. And I think that the extent to which the, the government has cracked down in China in the last number of years makes it a lot harder for companies in China and China as a whole to succeed in the future. So so let's talk uh, the correlation with the, the holistic approach, the collective approach. Approach, the community stakeholder-based yep. approach with sure. how that correlates with B Corps and how entrepreneurs sure. and leaders manage their organizations. What, what's the crossover specifically? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. Uh, and there is a, a growing B Corp community in China, um, inter interestingly enough. Uh, I've, I've actually, I wrote an HBS case study on the first B Corp. Uh, I, you know, sort of intersect with, with those folks um, uh, every so often, so so really a bunch of exciting folks. You know, uh, it, it, it's interesting because there is, you know, typically in cultural psychology, a a dichotomy between more individualistic and more collectivistic type of cultures. And you know, the U.S. and the West is more individualistic. You know, China, you know, Korea, Japan, you know, more collectivistic, and. Um, and so you would think that, so yeah, so this collectivism, you know, would foster, I think, greater consideration of society, of social, of social issues, social impact. And I think that's, I think that's generally the case there. I do think that the, that the, um, the social entrepreneurs I've found there, uh, found in China, having studied them for a while, you know, are deeply embedded in society. You know, the, the issue that, that is tough is that the government uh, is very leery of any sort of organizing like for an NGO because it potentially could be end up, you know, maybe it's a front for some sort of alternative uh, political movement. So so I think I think a challenge is that I think that culturally China is very well suited to develop new, you know, community or collective-based social impact models, but I think it's limited by uh, by the uh, by the strictness of the government and fear of of um, you know of, of political movements. So for business leaders listening out there in the ether, uh, knowing that demographics are changing, we, we see crises and protests on television every single day. Those workers are then coming back into the office, and they're not stop stopping the protest. They're demanding change. How do I, as a business leader, look at these some of these principles and adapt my business to collectively uh, grow my company in the community that it serves 
Yeah, interesting uh, question. I mean, I was just reading um, just reading something earlier today about like back to the office policies for companies, um, and this is it's a real tension because um, you know on the one hand you want I mean people to be have freedom to you know to to to, cho to choose the type the type of working arrangement that they want. However, you know if there's not you know, in face interaction, you know, innovation might be stifled. It might be harder for underrepresented groups to get, in particular, to get mentoring younger employees to grow in their career. Uh, so, you know, trying to, I mean, I think the next next decade will really be us trying, us sort of trying to figure this out. I mean, how to actually balance in person and virtual. And in regards, I mean, I don't know if your question was about like China specifically on on sort of protests, but I think, you know, it's. Um, I, I mean, I think as a company, you know, the world is changing a lot right now. Um, you know, not just with COVID, sort of trying to understand the mix of in person, not in person, but you know, sort of the salience of a lot of you know social and environmental issues. So it's a tough time to be a leader, but I think that you know by trying to educate oneself on um, on these issues and really making sure as a company that you have a broader purpose that is not just about making money, but actually about you know delivering value in some way to the broader world, that that is a good sort of start as a guide. But it's, I mean, I think these next five, 10 years will be some of the most challenging times for leaders because of all these issues. And it's not... We're sort of on unchartered un ground, um, so to speak. And dive into that just a little bit more. Is that what you mean by remaking capitalism, these principles? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's interesting because uh, so the book um, was that I, on the B Corp, uh, which I, th I thought we were going to talk mostly about B Corp, but ex you know, excited to talk about uh, this new book on mon markets as well. Um, so, so the book the book on B Corp was published in September 2020. So, it actually interestingly enough was um mostly it was mostly written before covid i mean it's almost like 99 percent of it was written before covid and then i had you know the book writing process you get these page proofs where you know it's basically the physical layout of the book um and you can sort of just to look, see what it looks like and write and i got the page proofs in march of 2020 and they actually ended up. It was the book was supposed to come out a little earlier than September, but it got delayed because of production issues with uh, with COVID. And I said, you know, I I have to. I mean, if we have this global pandemic, I can't not have something in there about about uh, about about COVID. So there is a little bit of COVID content, but that was actually added at the very last minute. Uh, but I guess my my point is that so so. Um, I mean, I do think that that COVID has, you know, sort of fundamentally changed employment relations. Um, and I do, in the book, talk a lot about ways of companies being much more stakeholder oriented. And I think that is a, a sort of a fundamental thread that connects, um, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the situation today, B corporations, and uh, and what I wrote in the book is because. You know, companies that move beyond simple profit motive and actually systematically think about how to deliver value to your employees, to your, you know, with your suppliers, in your community, 
respecting the nat natural environment, you know, do end up for, you know, over the long term, end up prospering in a more, you know, more effective way. So, so I, I do think, you know, there, there is something about remaking capitalism in there as well. I totally agree with that. And I think that's what we all, and maybe you would agree, I don't know, but we all learned something about ourselves during COVID. And we all learned, like, are, are we really spending our time efficiently? And how do I do more for the world and, and the people that serve within right. it? And so uh, I, I would agree that's what I'm also hearing and seeing is these companies are adapting to attract these employees who want to make a difference in the world. And that talent pool, the talent, the top talent uh, that's out there are being attracted to these organizations that really fit and align with their values in their organization. What I'm hearing, Chris, right now is you talked about crises and this being a very important time. Uh, the, the looming recession that's coming up that we're currently in that is apparently going to get worse and worse and worse. Time will tell, of course, don't have a, you know, a globe. What I'm hearing from business owners is kind of the game of Twister right now. How, how do I make sure that I can keep and, and not cut my overhead while also maintaining the values of my culture in, in the long run so that people aren't getting scared or, or get mad at me for, for firing employees that aren't producing? How do you recommend business leaders go about this process? And what advice, I guess, would you would you say based on the, the research that you've done? Sure. Wow. Uh, the twister, that's, that's, that's actually, I had not heard that metaphor. That's a really good metaphor, uh, actually, for what I think business leaders are needing to do uh, nowadays. You know, I mean, I think that um, for me, it comes back down to, you know, sort of purpose and accountability in, in some ways. Um, you know, one of the things that I find really um, useful about the B Corp model is that it's actually, you know, through the B Impact Assessment, it's a very systematic way of understanding the different, you know, effects that the business has, as well as how it's managed and a lot of benchmarking tools in there as well. So I think that, um, you know, I mean, of course, you know, there are times where businesses or might have to lay off employees to to um, you know to to continue surviving, but I think that actually going you know going through a process of you know really deeply understanding the stakeholder impacts of your firm, you know, will help clarify you know how to actually make those trade offs and you know you know if you think about it like what you're trying to do. I mean, to sort of not push the twister analogy too far. But, you know, some, you know, you know, professional yoga teacher is going to be much more effective than someone who is, um, you know, maybe 65 years old and has sat around watching TV and drinking beer um, their, their whole lives. And I think you, you know, as a business, you want to you, you want to make yourself be as limber and as resilient as possible. And I think that by understanding your company in a more effective way. Uh, is is how you're able to actually figure out where you can be limber and where you can stretch. I, I love that. And so it, it, let's expand on that a little bit more. How do you see businesses adapting to recessionary forces, constricting of capital uh, when, when funders are pulling out and things like that, being more resilient, dive into that a little bit more and, and being limber in an organization. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, 
you know, w w one thing that um, an example, and it's not a perfect example because unfortunately he ended up leaving Danone, but I had always had a lot of respect for Emmanuel Faber's uh, and Danone's response to COVID. So, you know, when COVID hit, uh, you know, sort of the famous example of inauthentic companies was Marriott. You know, they just recently, with uh, 200 other U.S. companies, had signed on to this business roundtable. You know, the purpose of business is is stakeholder. You know, stakeholders basically not profit anymore. We're going to meet our stakeholders, and what they did is they, you know, sort of raised the dividend, gave the CEO, or maybe maintained the dividend, gave the, gave the CEO a raise, and then you know, you know, cut a bunch of employees in their, um, you know, in their. Um, um, you know, in, in their benefits, whereas Danone's response to COVID, so they looked across the all different stakeholder groups. I mean, it's a company that, you know, employs a lot of farmers, active in communities, um, you know, has a board and managers also, you know, and so they actually formulated a strategy where they, you know, sort of looked across the different stakeholders, you know, they guaranteed for their farmers a, um, you know, sort of consistent price for their milk. You know, you might remember in early days of COVID, there was because of backlogs in factories, there was milk was being sort of just flushed down the drain, basically. Uh, or they were able to sort of push some of that into some things like cheese. They actually upped their community uh, philanthropy and nonprofit giving. They um, they actually, uh, I think, froze the dividend and the board took a took a pay cut basically and sort of symbolically and so i think that you know limberness is you know being able to to see across a broad set of stakeholders and how to actually be a, as fair and balanced across them as possible uh not just pull on okay we'll lay people off um you know which is i think frequently a you know um you know a, a you know, an easy thing to do in some ways, to, but but there's actually other ways to think about you know leveling across different stakeholders. Mm, I like the resilience, um, per, like correlating with an equilibrium, you know, like a, a three-legged stool, making sure all the sides are equal, equalized, equally treated. Love right. it, Chris. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, and I've learned so much. It's been such a riveting intellectual conversation uh, a new topic we've never had on the show before so i really do appreciate your time chris let's bring this home what is your definition of a real leader you know someone that has a a authentic purpose and works um you know works diligently to to, to accomplish that purpose uh you know including um many different types uh, of people in the achievement of it for, for Chris Marquis, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, work toward your authentic purpose, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Chris. Great. Thanks a lot, Kevin.